0: Hey, folks, and welcome back to The Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. Today, we're joined by Jeff Myers, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John as we continue to walk through the book of James. Uh, We've come now to the ending of chapter one, and we've seen Thus far, that James is writing to groups of Jewish converts who are likely being persecuted to a degree by their Jewish community that has not yet submitted to Christ, and with that comes many temptations. There, are temptations to uh, get in and appease the rich. There's temptation to despair, temptations to anger, and uh, last time in the last episode we discussed James's exhortation to these Christians to um, not merely believe the word that they've come to know, but to be doers of the word. To let this play out in their life and being slow to anger, for example, um, being quick to hear, slow to speak. Uh, And here at the end of chapter one, he says this, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So, Here, James turns on its head the notion that um, our spiritual maturity is found in those of us who have studied the most or who know Torah like the back of our hands or those who, um, you know, have the most theological knowledge or have listened to the most lectures. Here, he actually says it's those who actually obey the Lord, obey Christ. And James starts this section by saying something rather bold, which is that if one does not bridle his tongue, his religion is worthless. James says that those with unbridled and uncontrolled tongues have no reason to have confidence that their faith is a saving one because they aren't truly following after the Savior. So if it's okay, I thought it'd be good to to start off. I'm curious why James feels free to make this strong connection between a bridled or a controlled tongue, controlled speech, and our religion.
1: Well, it's certainly an emphasis that is familiar to us from the Old Testament. As we go through the book of Proverbs, for instance, we've talked about the relationship between James and the wisdom literature. But in Proverbs, again and again, we return to speech. Speech is that which disclose, discloses the heart, but also speech is that which is the true manifestation of wisdom is wisdom come to full expression being able to give the word in season for instance or having the capacity to weigh your words before they are delivered the fool is someone who just the words pour out of him like a babbling brook there's no sense of control there's no sense of um, considering what he's going to say beforehand but the wise man or the king is able to rule with his tongue He's able to say the right thing at the right time, and through his words, to soften anger, to change the course of a situation, to give insight into a situation that was formerly darkened. And so the power of speech, I think, is one that has always been at the heart of the wisdom literature. And within James, he's picking up on this theme, and I think developing it even further.
2: Yeah, that's helpful. I do think that Ruling is in view here, at least partially. Uh, The mention of Proverbs and the wisdom necessary to govern people is important. If this is an epistle addressed to the brothers, and I think it's appropriate to recognize he's um, talking to leaders in the church, Uh, they need to be mature in how they speak and what they motivate and encourage others to do. Uh, when we get, of course, to the middle of this, this uh, book, this uh, letter, we're in chapter three, which is all about the tongue and the power of the tongue. And in verse two of chapter three, he talks about a perfect man or a mature man able who is able to bridle the whole body. Now, that could be his whole body but it also could be the whole body in terms of the body of people that he governs. So you have a mature man who's governing and ruling and it by means of his words over a, a body of people. Um, and if he's bridling his tongue, it's not that he's just completely remaining silent. It's not that he doesn't talk at all, but just as you put a bridle in a horse, uh, it, it controls what is otherwise just wild kind of power, power without any direction. And so, um, a bridled tongue is a powerful tongue, but it's it's uh, going in the right direction. It's it's harnessed properly. And so, what James says here: look, uh, religious activity is about bridling your tongue. It's also going to be about what you do. We're going to see that in a minute in verse 27. But I think the reason why he connects up religion with bridling the tongue, or one of the reasons anyway, is because apparently the leaders he's addressing have this tendency to associate religion with zealotry, with fiery speeches, with angry speeches, with speeches designed to incite people into aggressive behavior. And that's not what true religion is. You, if you bridle your tongue in your leadership of other people, that's that's true religion. Uh, so I think we do have to read this in the context of chapter three and of the whole thrust of the book of James about these brothers ruling and guiding people in a mature way.
0: Yeah, I think I think putting some flesh on that. It's I think in the evangelicalism that I was raised in. When I come to a verse like this. I'm mostly thinking about um, coarse jesting or coarse language, which I think is here. But I, I think the verse is is much bigger than that. Someone can can never use coarse language or coarse jesting or or things like that, and still have a wildly uncontrolled tongue and speech pattern. There's a whole theology of of the tongue of speech throughout the Scripture and how powerful it is that we often forget and and we. You know, It's something that we forget, even in the training of our children, we, we can sometimes let our children just kind of walk around saying whatever they please. And they're not, they're not being crass. They're not just seemingly wild, but they're not controlled and they're not weighing how important and how powerful speech is and the imprints that it makes on our own psyche and on, in the lives of other people. Jeff, you helpfully tie this in with Adam in your commentary to him one of his first things that he needs to do is to name these animals and in doing so he sets patterns for all of history. Could you flesh that out for us a little bit?
2: Well, I mean, it's the theme of of ruling righteously by speaking, by what you say. Scriptures are full of this. As Alistair noted earlier, bridling the tongue is about coming to completion, coming to maturity. It's all through the wisdom literature. And I do think sometimes we forget this and you're, I think you're right too, Brian, to call attention. To the fact it's not, it's not just, uh, I don't know, uh, like coarse speech that you say, or as you said, or something, it's, it's more not speaking in a way that's going to be helpful to people. It's going to serve people well. So here we have a situation in which the people of God have been displaced. They've been banished. They're being persecuted. They're being pursued. They're they're being tortured in some cases. They got inquisitors running after them, um, and the brothers, the leaders, are not speaking into the situation in a way that's going to serve the people well. Uh, yet, you, know, you, you know, we have to look at this through the lens of the whole book, um, and in 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 the way they're they're speaking they're deceiving we're back to this issue of self-deception too they're deceiving their own hearts and they're thinking that this kind of expression of of religion is at the core of their faith and that is inciting people to fight back but actually uh, true religion is doing something much more commonplace it's it's uh it's speaking to people and encouraging them to take care of orphans and widows. That's more important than inciting them to, uh, to, to fight back against their oppressors.
1: Continuing the theme of um, Adam, I think um, Eugen Rosenstock Kussi's discussion of the cross of reality is one that I've always found very helpful here. He talks about the way in which human life is organized by holding things together across different axes. So we have um, backward, forward, inward, outward. Um, So think forward in time as we look forward to things in the future, that's held together by a certain form of action and speech, likewise, connecting ourselves with the past or connecting ourselves with the outside world and outside realities, and then forming inner realities, whether that's the inward reality of our own selves or the inward reality of a a family or church community or a nation. All of these things are held together by speech. And we bridle the tongue, not because um, it's important to clamp down the power of speech, but it's important to harness and direct the power of speech Because speech is, as he will go on to argue later on within the epistle, incredibly powerful for good and for ill. And someone who's able to harness that power is able to hold together reality across many different planes. Mm. So you can think about the way in which we relate the present to the future by making vows or commands concerning the future that project um, intentions and deliberations into future action and cut off and make decisions that will bind us in the future, thereby connecting what we're doing now with what's going to happen in the future. Or the way in which we memorialize the past and we speak about the past in a way that gives us a sense of deep identity and connection with those who have gone before us. Or we can think about the ways that we speak as a group to form a sense of camaraderie or belonging. We can think about the speech, form of speech that is involved in song when we sing together and there's a sense of unity and um, harmony that exists between a group of people and the oneness that arises from that. Or the way in which we name the outside world truthfully and the way in which we speak about a wider reality that enables us to gain engage with it in a way that has purchase upon it. All of those things come from the harnessing of speech. And we see that in the original creation as the Lord creates and then names he brings into existence by speech but he also names those things which he has created and that power of speech is one that God has given to us as his creatures that we also might be those who bring things into existence through our speech who hold together reality by our speech just as the word holds together all reality the word with a capital w we are called to be participants in that power And so the power of speech, it's not surprising that it should be so frequently emphasized within scripture. Scripture itself, of course, is a sort of speech that Mm. separates and holds together and orders reality. And we are creatures of that speech. And as a result, we are supposed to engage in that sort of speech ourselves as sub creators to the Lord.
0: Right. And this takes wisdom to be able to enact this in our daily lives. I mean, I, I think about Proverbs 26 Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. This takes wisdom to, to flesh out in our life. And I, I think about Jesus uh, specifically in Matthew. You know, Jesus is quite chatty in the gospel of Matthew. He makes he talks a lot for long periods of time. He's not afraid of, of going on and on and on in a, in a way that's helpful to, the, to his hearers. And then at the very, there at the very end in, 20, in Matthew 27, you know, he's standing before the governor. He answers in a few words. Pilate asks him a question and he gives him no answer. He, and it says not even to a single charge so that the governor was greatly amazed. So Jesus knows when to when to speak, when to speak for long periods of time. He also knows when to not speak at all, even against false charges. And though that leads to his death, it in the end leads to, to glory and salvation, and so James is is really pulling his, his uh, hearers and his readers into the life of Christ and in this charge here.
2: So there's a contrast here between a religious, uh, false kind of religious perception of someone who, who talks a lot or has, has unman- un unman, uncontrolled speech. Um, And someone who visits orphans and widows in their affliction. Mm -hmm. Um, Religion that is pure, undefiled before God, okay? Not just as other people perceive you uh, as a fiery religious kind of person, but before God is this much more private, even not showy kind of action. Uh, visiting orphans and widows in their affliction okay so this whole this whole company of people he's addressing are being afflicted okay they're suffering we know that from chapter one we know that Mm -hmm. also from chapter five but in in the, the affliction of the leaders they're supposed to care for the the weaker members of their of their company of their of their society these orphans and widows and and not forget them So that instead of trying to guide and direct the the powerful, the the strong, the men who want to fight back against the oppressors, James is redirecting them to take care of the weakest among them. And that's what true religion is. And, And surely also the word visit here is connected up with Hebrew scriptures. When God visits his people, he saves them, he delivers them from trouble and hardship. So he's not simply talking about, although this is part of it, he's not simply talking about going and paying a half hour visit to uh, the widow or the orphanage. He's talking about actually um, entering their lives, the orphans and widows, caring for them, making sure they have food, uh, making sure they have shelter and that they're safe um that needs to be borne in mind when we read about visiting orphans and widows. That's also true, for example, in Matthew 25, when Jesus is, re- is talking about either the last judgment or, or some other judgment day where he calls the nations before him. And he talks about how the believers have visited him in prison, visited him when he's sick, doesn't just mean as it often does in our minds about, you know, paying them a visit. It means actually coming to them and delivering them in some way, giving them some sort of uh, release from their trouble.
1: I think that connection with the language of the Lord's visitation of his people that you draw, Jeff, is absolutely crucial to understanding what's going on here. And once again, I find the parallels that we can draw between this discussion of these issues within James and the discussion that our Lord gives within the Sermon on the Mount, very instructive, way in which we are called to um, be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. And what is taking place here is, in many ways, uh, fleshing out of what it means to be holy as I am holy, that common refrain within the Old Testament, especially within the um, Pentateuch. That emphasis is seen first of all in the holiness keeping oneself unstained from the world and also the saving action that the Lord has visited and redeemed his people and that visitation is often presented in presenting his people as orphans and widows those who have who lack a father figure or a husband to act on their behalf and God is the father who acts on behalf of his An orphaned people. He's the husband who acts on behalf of the widowed people. And in the same way, we're supposed to play that um, part in relationship to others, because as the Lord has done to us, we are supposed to do to others. And so this is very much, again, in keeping with themes that are very prominent within the Old Testament, where the redemptive action of God provides the paradigm within which the people are supposed to run their own internal relationships and so the test of justice once again is how are the orphans and the widows and um the strangers and the aliens treated within your society because you were once these people or um in, elsewhere you are as aliens and strangers before me as the lord's statement concerning his people and so that challenge to act towards others as we have received grace I think is one that is packed within this statement and so this form of religion is a form of religion that manifests practically what it means to be conformed to the character of a God who visited us in our affliction and a God who we um, see as the true manifestation of holiness which is dazzling and beyond our comprehension but we are called to be transformed by that and to manifest some reflection of it
2: yeah that's good that connection between uh, speech and action is also going to come up in chapter two when James talks about what good is it if someone says he has faith but doesn't have action doesn't have works can that faith save him and once again, the illustration here is if a brother or sister is poorly clothed, they're lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, "Go in peace," without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? Um, that kind of faith is dead. It's just, it's the same, it's the same thing, same idea here in verses twenty-six and twenty-seven. That um, true religion, true faith, is discovered is proved in action action especially to those who are needy who are weak and need need our help
1: and that connection between the statements the end of chapter one and the beginning of chapter two i think helps us to avoid too strong of a chapter division the chapter divisions in scripture are not inspired um for the most part there sometimes there are clear divisions within the text um But most of the time, those chapter divisions are later insertions and we need to be a bit wary of them. And that emphasis upon care for the fatherless and the widow and impartiality and justice is one that we often find in the Old Testament. These things belong together. So, for instance, in Deuteronomy, chapter 10, verses 17 to 18, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. And that emphasis upon the true character of justice, justice being seen to act on behalf of the oppressed and the distressed, but also not showing partiality. Of course, in most situations, the temptation is to show partiality to those who are rich and against the poor. There are other situations where the temptation might be the other way. And scripture warns us about both. But what we have in the character of true justice described for the judges and rulers of the people is something that should be characteristic of all of us in our religion. We are called to engage in acts of justice that are reflective of the lord's own justice which is not merely um, just judgments and punishments but justice as setting things to rights of restoring of delivering of repairing things that are broken particularly seen in the broken social fabric of where there's a father who's missing or a husband who has died that the just ruler steps in in those situations and plays the part of a father or a husband, someone who's able to act on behalf of someone who has no one else to act on behalf of them. And so the kinsman redeemer we might think of, um, it's often a, a paradigm within which we're encouraged to think of the faithful leader or think of the Lord himself as the kinsman redeemer. And that emphasis upon true justice as the Action on behalf of those who have no one to act on their behalf and impartiality and judgment, I think also emphasizes something of the royal character of the faith that we're called to display. We're, we're raised to a new level of ethical practice as we're encouraged to act as just judges and um, leaders to take a sort of um, agency within our faith that... Plays to our strengths that is not merely about avoiding sin, but it's about positively executing justice in our relationships and the way that we interact with people in our society.
2: That last connection you made, uh, Alistair, is pretty explicit in chapter two. Uh, In the end, you know, we're heirs of the kingdom, verse five, um, and it's the royal law uh, that they're supposed to fulfill in verse 8. So, um, and then in addition to that, if uh, if if we're going to start in chapter 2, I think it's important to note here that uh, Jesus Christ, I believe, is held up here as the mature one, as the glorious one. I, I do take some, I take issue with a, a number of the translations here. Um, typically translated verse 1, my brother's show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. I would, the whole question here is whether you translate pistis as faith in or faith of, or the faithfulness of Jesus. I think they're both possible exegetically, but I'm going to go with the latter. Uh, So it's holding holding, show no partiality as you cling or hold to faithfulness of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious one. Um, And so I think it's Jesus' faithful living, Jesus' faithful uh, behavior, his life that's being held out here, especially since he is called the glory or the glorious one. Uh, He's the glorious man. He's the one who learned obedience and was made mature through his suffering and death. Uh, he's declared to be superior uh, to the angels. He's the radiance of the glory of God. And this is important here because Jesus is the one who throughout his life did not show partiality to the rich rulers, to the chief priests, the uh, the scribes and lawyers, the, the elders. Uh, he did not show partiality to them at all. And I think he's the example being held out here because although they were it, it would have been easy for Jesus to curry favor with them in order to get a hearing uh, with more people, let's say uh, he didn't do that. He is fo- so the, the exhortation here is to, is for the brothers to follow the pattern laid out by the Lord, the, the prince, the ruler Jesus, the glorious one, the way he faithfully lived, In the world is the way we want to live because that will that will give us true authority to rule in his kingdom if we take up his cross and follow him
1: i think the reminder that this is the faith of the lord jesus christ the lord of glory underlining the royal character of the one that we're serving exposes something of the shallowness of the attitude revealed in the actions of the next verse, that if you're holding that faith and you're showing great honor to someone who just walks in with a gold ring and fine clothing, surely you are not truly recognizing what is at the heart here. Um, you're showing glory to something that's very small, very meager in its, in its glory by comparison with the Lord of all things. And so, the fixation upon incurring favor with the wealthy upon showing special honor and attention to those who are wealthy is a failure to recognize the true glory that is dazzling. And besides which everything else is, but a flickering candle next to the sun that fixation upon the riches of, and the glories and the honors and the, um, the offices of this world um, is very much out of keeping with a recognition of the Lordship of Christ. And so the more that we are alert to the one who's at the heart of our worship, the less weight these sorts of temporal um, glories will have with us, the, more, the less they will um, be fixations and imaginative foci for our lives and our societies the more we'll be able to act towards them with a certain form of ambivalence that they're not really the most important thing in the world. And as we've seen the glory of Christ and as we focus upon that, everything else will start to dim a bit and we'll start to see the tarnishing of, those gold, of that gold um, and the tattering of that fine clothing. Those things are going to fade away, but Christ's glory will endure.
2: Right, exactly. And if you add to that, um, reading this in context, so you have a community that's been exiled and a rich man comes into their assemblies or their synagogue, literally. So these, this is an early, early church situation, a very early church situation where they have assemblies, uh, synagogues. And so one of these rich rulers walks in, and the immediate reaction would have been excitement, maybe even hope. Hope that this man, who obviously has money, authority, and power, so he has a robe of office, and he has a gold ring, possibly a signet ring, so he's able to do things. He's able to have influence. Maybe this guy would influence others to end or slow the persecution that, you know, the church is experiencing. And It turns out that he does identify these this man, verse 2, in verse 7, as the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called or or which was invoked over you. Uh, It's the rich, verse 6, who oppress you, the ones who are dragging you into court. So this whole situation here, this whole Uh, story here that he's telling them it's not just a you know illustration of partiality it's what's happening in their assemblies and it is this temptation they have to think somehow that if they get on the right side of these oppressors and if they coddle them and uh, stroke their egos if you will and give them a good place to 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 sit, then somehow, maybe uh, we can put an end to the suffering we're going through. I think that's in the background here, and they need they need to be extremely careful uh, that they don't fall into that trap. I mean, it's almost the opposite of the aggressive, violent behavior to pay back or to put an end to the. The persecution. So you either have one or the other. You either, you know, just completely give in in order to avoid the pain and the suffering, or you fight back in order to end the pain and suffering through aggressive, violent means. Uh, these are, I mean, and it, this really makes sense too if you think about the way uh, people in these kinds of situations act. You can you can think about. Concentration camps, you, if you've read Solzhenitsyn, or you read about the Jewish Holocaust, when when you're in these kinds of situations, you're either going to organize a, a fight, or you're going to try your best to get what you want by currying favor. Now, those situations are really extreme. It's not exactly the same with these, these people, but uh, it makes sense when you put... When you put it into that context, that they would be tempted to do either of these two behaviors, both of which are, are condemned by our Lord, and especially by his behavior. Jesus didn't do that as else or just mentioned. Jesus did not curry favor with those that were in power. And also Jesus did not fight back. You know, Peter, put away your sword. This is not the way the kingdom is going to, uh, to come. It's going to be through my death and resurrection, and it's going to be through my church's death and resurrection.
1: It's also worth thinking here about the ways that assemblies and meals would function within much of the ancient world. Um, Often they're means of forming beneficial associations. They continue to be, but they'll be even more so within that sort of society. That concern is one that, particularly in the Gospel of Luke, our lord often speaks to so for instance in chapter 14 verses 12 to 14 he said also to the man who had invited him when you give a dinner or a banquet do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid but when you give a feast invite the poor the crippled the lame the blind and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just and that question of who belongs at the table and where do they belong at the table is a question that is often raised within the gospel of Luke in particular, because the table is a metaphor, more than a metaphor for what the kingdom of God is. It's an understanding in, there's an understanding that at the table, we are rehearsing the reality of the new world that Christ is bringing in through his work. And so the way that we act, who we try and curry favour with, where we seek positions at the table, who we invite to the feast, how we comport ourselves at the feast, these are matters that reveal hearts, they reveal where our priorities lie, they reveal where we draw the boundaries, who we mark in, who we mark out. And the degree to which we are giving favourable treatment at our feasts to people who um, Offer us beneficial worldly association, but who may be enemies of the gospel, um, is an important thing to consider. And I think these are questions that are ones that we're thinking through as Christians at this time. How do we have a posture that is uh, appropriately gracious and welcoming and gentle towards those who are outside, while also being very clear where the boundaries lie? being very clear what's in, what's out, being very clear on the way that you must be dressed, as it were, if you're going to come to the wedding feast and what is not permitted. And those sorts of compromises are very easy to make when we have the possibility of some earthly favour or inclusion or place at the table. If we give them a place at our table, if we say the right things, if we approve the right, um, if we're quiet about certain things that might offend them, we might have a place at their table. But these questions need to be considered in the light of the fact that this is not our table. It's the table of the Lord of glory. It's his glory that must be central here. He is the host. He is the one to whom all glory must be given. And if we are seeking to curry favor with other people in a way that is in conflict with his centrality, with his principles and with the ways in which he um, wants his guests to behave, then we are betraying um, our Lord. And so these are questions that continue to be deeply relevant. And I think it's important to go back to passages like this when we're thinking through some of these questions in our presentation of the gospel to people within our society where there can be a great deal of hostility. And with certain compromises, with certain currying of favor, we can gain um, we can gain support from people from different quarters of society if we just keep quiet on certain issues or questions. Yeah, there's. I
2: think that's exactly right, Alistair, especially in our contemporary situation. In America, I'm not sure what it's like in the UK, but there's this temptation for the church to behave according to the world's, not just the world's definitions of power and wisdom, but also the methodology. Um, And the American church seems to become, you know, for better or for worse, more politically and media savvy. Um, So, what do, we, what do we do here? We, we, somehow, we sometimes think, and I get this in members of my church, that the most powerful, most influential things we can do are done in the, in the realm of politics and also media. So angry speeches uh, or jockeying for positions of power and state or local legislatures. Okay, that's fine. I, I, I realize that Christians need to be in those places, um, but maybe the modern church needs to remember that the most powerful political action uh, is our gathered Sunday worship. It's the liturgy. It's the preached word. It's the meals, as you say, uh, and it's the it's the baptism, the washings that mark out this new and reborn humanity, uh, and that humanity is uh, is not striated or, or stratified in ways that you see in the world, where the poor and the rich all have a place at the table, and each can serve one another, and that that kind of life of the church is much more powerful. It's hard to get people to see this much more powerful in changing the world than uh, the kind of political action that everybody is, um, you know, is catechized in by our media Um, protests or even violent action somehow to force our leaders to do this or that. Um, Well, Okay, there may be a place for protests. There's certainly a place for petitioning the government to do things. I I get that. But all of that can easily devolve into uh, the kind of thing that James is talking about here, where we're thinking somehow that the way to change the world is to get the rich and the powerful uh, on our side. Uh, and the way to do that is to give them places of honor, to make them trophies of grace. I've heard, I get so tired of hearing that phrase in the church, a trophy of grace. And it's usually a rich person or a good looking person or a, or a movie star. And somehow, if, if we can just get them and honor them, then they'll be able to change things for us. And as most of us know, have been around for a while, especially in America, most of these trophies of grace have ended up face planting in terms of the faith after, you know, a few years because they're given all this honor. They're given this this, uh, uh, this position within uh, whatever church they're in and whatever parachurch organization. And then all of a sudden, a few years later, it turns out, well, you know, that was this was just something they were trying out for a while or whatever, and they didn't they didn't follow through. Um, I think the church should learn that that's not the way to to change society. That's not not the way to bring in the righteousness, the justice of God, not through anger, but also not through the kind of worldly um, worldly uh, ways, systems, schemes that are often put before us uh,
1: in our culture. And James also explores the way in which there's a direct conflict in most situations between the values of the rich and the powerful within society and the values of the Lord himself. And that tension can be seen in both directions. First of all, the more that you try and coddle and approve and accommodate and compromise with the values of the rich and powerful, the more you'll discover that they are blaspheming the holy name. They're the ones who are oppressing the righteous and you'll end up compromising and um, capitulating to those attitudes and accommodating things that should never be accommodated. They've ended up, as a result of their behaviour, dishonouring the poor man in A similar manner to the rich people who are oppressing them they've tried to make themselves favorably just they've tried to make the rich see them as favorably disposed to be accommodating and inoffensive and they've ended up dishonoring the poor man as a result on the other hand um they failed to perceive the lord's own posture that the lord has not chosen the rich for the most part he's chosen those who are poor in the world and that reversal and the sort of transvaluation of values is something we've already seen in chapter one. And this is something again, that's picking up themes from the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Blessed are all the people you would not think are blessed, but yet, they are the ones who are blessed in the kingdom or the way that Paul argues in first Corinthians chapter one, consider your calling brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, etc. Those emphases really show the tension, the enmity, the um, incompatibility between the values of human beings and the value of the values of the Lord. On the other hand, and the need for the people of God to be wary of the values of the rich. And the desire to accommodate those is quite natural, but we need to resist it.
0: And again, uh, we want to emphasize what James emphasizes in chapter one, which is that we don't want to merely uh, think about and theologize about these verses here, but we want to encourage those of you who are listening who are pastors, um, but also everyone just to, to find ways to, Do this text to uh, consider what it would mean for your church or in your life to be unstained from the world, but also how to visit orphans and widows, how to help those that are afflicted in your midst and how to let what Jeff was just saying so helpfully about the Sunday liturgy flow out into your life, that hospitality that Jesus shows at his table every week from the oldest to the youngest, from the richest to the poorest how to let that flesh itself out in our daily life is one that we are often slow to do because it's, it's frankly uncomfortable. And, uh, but the way of Christ is to walk into those uncomfortable and messy places and to bring the light of, of Christ into them.
2: There's an interesting rebuke here in verse six, but you have dishonored the poor man. And I think there's a bit of, subtle, James is subtly connecting things back up to uh, with something in, in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus being the poor man who's reset. Jesus is the one who receives the care and neglect in Matthew 25. Remember when in his parable, the sheep and the goats, he makes this astonishing claim that the righteous are to be blessed and the wicked punished because Jesus is himself the poor man. Uh, So all the righteous, remember, say, well, when did we see you poor? When did we see you sick? When did we see you in prison? Um, When did we help you? When did we visit you? And Jesus says, well, as much as you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. So but when James says you have dishonored the poor man, uh, well, are they dishonoring Jesus or are they dishonoring the the poor person in shabby clothes that came into their assembly. Well, yes, both. I think, I think the irony here is also pretty delicious. Uh, He's pointing out to his readers that in their treatment of the poor and their partiality toward the rich, they have become oppressors in, in much the same way that they have been oppressed. Okay. So when When you, as God's people, show partiality in your communities, you are have become stained by the world, and you are doing the same things that they're doing to you. Okay. So just as Jesus honored the poor and is himself to be honored, the people of God must honor and serve the poor man, especially since Jesus has given us this word that as we do it to the least of these, my brothers. As you've done it to the least of these, my brothers, you've done it for me. So it is rather bold for James to suggest that they are acting in the same way as their oppressors are uh, if they act this way in their assembly with regard to the rich and the poor.
0: Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast.